Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. We need to make sure that we separate bad actors from bad technology. And when we do come to regulate and think about the lessons to learn, we do so in a proportionate way and we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Today's guest explains what he believes the right regulatory response to the collapse of crypto exchange FTX would be. He details the policies UK lawmakers and regulators should consider as they seek to more closely police all things crypto, while also establishing the city as a competitive finance hub post-Brexit. And he outlines what EU policymakers got right and where he believes they went wrong in their regulation of the sector. Tom Duff-Gordon's 20-year career includes five and a half years overseeing banking group Credit Suisse's government relations and regulatory policy in the EU and UK. Since June, he has led crypto exchange Coinbase's approach to regulatory change outside of the US as its Vice President for International Policy. Hi Tom, welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, great to be here. So Tom, you joined Coinbase in June. Could you tell us a little bit more about your role? What prompted you to take it on now and what's topping your to-do list currently? I'm the Vice President of International Policy at Coinbase. So I joined in June. Prior to that, I was at Credit Suisse. I'd been there for 15 years. I started as a banker and I was doing M&A and strategy. I had a ringside seat for the kind of re-regulation of financial services after the crisis. But it then became clear to me that as a policy person, two of the most interesting areas were going to be ESG and digital assets. And I wanted to go deep on one of those. Digital assets was the one that was most exciting for me. The idea that you could change the way the financial system works was something that I really wanted to get involved in. So I jumped the chance to join Coinbase. Coinbase was the only actor really that I looked at in this sector. Coinbase is listed and regulated and their posture is very much one which is pro-regulation and leaning into regulation, understanding that getting the rules right for this new emerging nascent technology is actually going to be very empowering and bring mass adoption into the sector. The other thing that drew me to, to Coinbase was the very clear mission statement about economic freedom, particularly for the retail audience, how using crypto can help with the cost of financial services and the availability of them. We do three things at Coinbase. So we are first and foremost, a cryptocurrency exchange. The retail side of the business is the biggest and most pronounced side of the business. We're based in the US and most of the revenue comes from there. But the second pillar of the business is an institutional business. So dealing with wholesale clients and high net worth individuals. And it's that side of the business, which is growing particularly fast now. And you would have seen some of the examples of the increasing institutional adoption. 
And then the third pillar of Coinbase is what we call an ecosystem services provider, particularly for Web3. We say Web1 was effectively being able to take a look at the internet in the early stages of it and take information down. Web2 is read and write. So where we are now, where lots of users are providing content to websites. And then Web3 is going to be read, write and own because it's going to be a move to a more decentralized internet where we give users of the internet a bit more autonomy and control and power over the data that they use. So within that, we have Coinbase Commerce that allows kind of merchants to have the technology to effectively take crypto as a payment. We have a cloud solution that allows developers of Web3 to build off that. We have Coinbase Ventures, which is our VC venture capital arm which looks to make lots of small investments into that broader ecosystem. So we're probably at Coinbase, the broadest spectrum cryptocurrency player out there with a focus on digital assets and increasingly moving into that Web3 and DeFi space. So all of the policy work that we do outside of the US, I have responsibility for and across each of those three different pillars. I think most pressing, of course, is the development of regulation, which was happening both at the global level through global standard setters like the FSB and Basel and IOSCO and others, but also at the regional level. And one of the big priorities for Coinbase is to increase our international footprint. And we want to do that in a way which is compliant. And therefore, top of the to-do list is really to work with and talk to central banks and finance ministries and regulators across the world outside of the US, effectively to engage in a constructive dialogue about where everybody is on their journey towards putting together some basic regulatory guardrails for the sector, which has obviously proven to be necessary after recent events that we've seen in the market, in order to ensure that there is confidence and people feel that there is trust and that they can begin to explore these exciting new technologies. What tips would you have for others in government affairs and all the regulatory policy space looking to move to a crypto firm? I found in traditional finance that we were, in some sense, re-regulating over and over again, different iterations of the same rule sets. But in the area of digital assets, the opportunity here is a really exciting one to be at the start of a journey and to help contribute to a framework which we hope will stand the test of time and which will help to bring mass adoption into the market. So I think tips would just be, if you're interested in being part of something new, if you're willing to be versatile and dynamic and learn new things in terms of the ways of working, I think it's a terrific sector to get involved in. It's also a sector clearly not for the faint-hearted because of the volatility of the asset class and because of the nascent nature of the technology. There are surprises at every turn, so people have to be able and willing to deal with uncertainty and the willingness to be resilient as we go through different cycles like the cycle we're in right now. Okay, and you mentioned that regulation is necessary given recent events seen in the market. And we're speaking not long after the collapse of Coinbase rival FTX, which was a $32 billion crypto exchange before its founder SPF filed for bankruptcy in November. That's the biggest collapse the crypto world has seen so far, and it's shaking confidence after a rocky period in the sector. As you say, it's a volatile asset, and that volatility has certainly been seen in the markets in recent months. Coinbase's shares have taken a hit. How should the industry and lawmakers react to restore confidence in the sector? When we look at the FTX issue, the important thing to say is that this was a bad actor. It seems like a lot of the information and details of this are still unfolding. But this is not bad technology. I don't think that, that there was a problem with the technology. Actually, the underlying technology has proven to be very resilient through this year. This isn't the first and it probably won't be the last issue that we see. Obviously, we had concerns with Terra Luna, with the algorithmic stablecoins earlier in the year. We then had 
Celsius in three hours. And this is the third big event in the crypto ecosystem that we're seeing. And as you said, that is knocking trust. But despite all of that, the fiat-backed stablecoins have performed very well, certainly Bitcoin, Ethereum, the other major tokens. Even though they've priced down, they've been resilient given the market conditions. So there is work to be done, but we need to make sure that we separate bad actors from bad technology. And when we do come to regulate and think about the lessons to learn, we do so in a proportionate way and we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. When I think specifically about FTX, I think central to the problem here was the misuse of customer funds. All of this is alleged, but it appears that consumers were depositing at FTX and rather than those assets being segregated, they were being lent to Almeida, which was the sister market maker slash hedge fund to plug some trading gaps that they had. Then the market maker was then making levered bets back on FTX and using the native FTT token as collateral. And then you effectively had an unhealthy flywheel effect between the market maker and the exchange, coupled with this misuse of customer funds, a lack of transparency, et cetera, et cetera, and at Coinbase. We hope that over time, this could be seen as a catalyst for a stronger and more resilient sector if this does lead to the exit of players that were not following the rules and were misusing customer funds. And if the regulatory response can be proportionate and well-intentioned, then we hope that we can build stronger and further. We don't want to do things like look at this and say, hey, the unhealthy connection between the exchange and the market maker means that we need a full unbundling of all the activities that crypto asset service providers do. But certainly rules around ensuring that there is not an unhealthy connection between an exchange and a market maker make total sense. And then transparency can be improved hugely with regard to how customer assets are held in a safe and secure way. At Coinbase, we are listed on the NASDAQ, which means that we have audited financial statements, which means that people can see our assets and liabilities. And we have a clear segregation of, of customer accounts where they're held one to one. And we do not reuse or lend any customer funds unless directed to do so. So we have to distinguish between a bad actor and not tar everyone with the same brush. And then let's learn the right lessons from FTX such that we can usher in the right kind of regulation that will build trust that will hopefully lead to greater adoption. And as you say, it's important to separate bad actors from bad technology. What efforts are you going to personally to ensure that lawmakers and consumers make that separation off the back of FTX? And what conversations have you been having with lawmakers to ensure that they settle on the right regulation for the sector? There needs to be a huge amount of ongoing education. It's something that the industry could do better. And certainly we will be focusing on making sure that we are even more present in the dialogues with lawmakers following FTX. That's important. Transparency, I think, is key. And where crypto exchanges and providers are not listed and they're not providing transparency via audited financial statements, then they could potentially look to do things like proof of reserves. And this is a topic which is being discussed a little bit in the industry right now. It would be a step in the right direction for those other players in the industry where there is perhaps now increased consumer and investor concerns about the state of the balance sheet. So I think we do need to restore confidence and part of that will be more transparency. But certainly if you look at the UK, for example, one way to restore confidence is to usher in and accelerate some basic regulatory guardrails. In the UK, we saw some terrifically positive statements from the then minister, John Glenn, back in April, talking about the ambition that the UK has to be a leading global crypto hub to complement the strength of London as a global financial centre. And that was really welcome. And I think it is time to move from good words into good action. 
And one of the results of FTX is I'm sure that we'll see an acceleration towards the consultation and development of regulatory guardrails in the UK, but also in other markets. We need basic governance and risk and controls. And some of these basic hygiene factors, if they're brought into regulation without that regulation being oppressive and somehow cramping innovation, that will be welcome. And the industry has been asking for basic regulation prior to FTX. So this isn't a knee-jerk reaction by the industry. We're really just seeing an accelerated demand in order to reinstill some of the confidence that may have been lost. We just need to get the balance right between ensuring that consumers are protected, but are still able to engage in the crypto ecosystem. We do think that the retail use case here is incredibly important. And so we're keen to stress with lawmakers and regulators that Let's learn the lessons, but defaulting to perhaps pushing this technology just to an elite who are supposedly wealthy and sophisticated or just to institutions, I think would be an overreaction. So we must try and be proportionate as we respond to this. Are you happy with the UK government's approach to regulating the crypto sector? Are there any unforeseen opportunities or challenges that you think lawmakers are missing currently? UK has impressively been focused on this for a number of years, actually. So the Bank of England, the Treasury, the FCA and others have formed a task force several years ago and have been looking at different aspects of crypto. So an extraordinary amount of technical work has been going on for a number of years. What was missing was where does the government stand? And everybody welcomed the statement that John Glenn made in April to say the government wishes to be a leading crypto hub. We're now moving towards a regulatory framework. I know the Bank of England are working to bring stable coins within the regulatory perimeter. That's a huge opportunity for the UK. A sterling stable coin is something we would like to see come into the market. Stable coins are designed to be a blockchain enabled means of payment that will be more effective in a world in which we see high volatility for unbacked coins like Bitcoin. The key stable coins now that account for 90% of the overall volume are US denominated. And it's a real opportunity for the UK to bring in some sensible and proportionate rules for stable coins and to see the sterling stable coin market grow. And there's an opportunity for a basic set of guardrails for crypto asset service providers where the UK takes the good bits of Mika, which is the markets and crypto assets regulation from the EU and builds upon those and perhaps looks to focus less on some of the parts of Mika that are less necessary or work less well. So it's a fast follow opportunity for the UK there. And then they could look at other areas like it is a good idea to bring crypto within the financial promotions regime. Nobody wants to see false and misleading financial promotions. But we have to be careful that if we bring in too severe suitability requirements or we make it impossible for crypto asset service providers to approve their financial promotions or get them approved by third parties, then that becomes a ban on engagement in the sector. So we do need a thoughtful calibration of the financial promotion rules when they come out. Looking at tax in the UK could be interesting as well. Staking and some of these new innovative uses of tokens. What is the taxable treatment of a state token? Is that a disposal or not? Should there be capital gains tax? There are some clarifications that we'd welcome there. Is the sector, for example, also included in the digital services tax? That would be important to look at. And then there's some really exciting work going on in the legal community around thinking about what are the property rights associated with digital assets and are those clear enough? And is there a way in which perhaps the government in a very targeted way could help to accelerate the process of common law to bring about some clarifications around digital property rights? And that could be very empowering, particularly as we think about how digital assets can be used as collateral in institutional crypto markets. So there's a huge opportunity for the UK here as a financial centre with the talent, with common law, 
with the financial center, et cetera, to really accelerate. And we sometimes think back to the 1980s with the deregulation and the big bang and how electronification was really the catalyst of that big bang, allowing FX markets and stuff really to take off in the UK in the 80s. And we'd be keen to argue that blockchain and digital assets and, and crypto could and should be the catalyst for the big bang 2.0, which we've heard ministers talk about. And with really exciting use cases around making equity markets and financial markets much more efficient from a post-trade perspective. And then all the use cases associated with how retail users can lend, borrow, send, receive, store, manage crypto assets, digital assets in a much more efficient and effective way, and really start to introduce a more efficient payment rail for anybody who's transacting online. So a huge opportunity for the UK, but certainly several areas that we need to look at where we need to move from words towards action. You've just listed quite a lengthy to-do list for regulators and lawmakers looking to police this sector more closely. There's plenty that they could be looking at. You also mentioned that proportionality is important as they look to regulate the sector. Copper Technologies is among many fintechs to have recently chosen to set up outside the UK, citing struggles to win approval from the UK Markets Watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority. And this obviously comes at a time when the UK is seeking to establish itself as a competitive financial services hub post-Brexit. In that context, what can regulators and lawmakers do to make the UK a more attractive place for crypto firms to do business while also keeping an eye on the consumer risks associated with these business models? I think you touched on it. There's always a healthy tension between the desire to ensure that there's competitiveness and there's innovation in the financial services sector, but also with the imperative to make sure that we manage financial stability risks to market integrity, risk to consumer harm. We're encouraged by the financial services and markets bill that will introduce this new secondary mandate for the UK regulators to have due regard to competitiveness. Now, their primary mandate will remain financial stability and market integrity and consumer protection, which is absolutely right. But having a secondary mandate that looks uh, at a number of issues, one of which being competitiveness, that is important because that will then give the industry an ability and a yardstick by which to challenge the regulators to see whether things are taking too long, to see whether we see other jurisdictions moving ahead. And there may be legitimate reasons why the UK is being slower in certain areas or being more cautious. But sometimes that may not be the case. And there may be a gap between the aspirations of government and the speed and the processing and the desire to move forward from the regulators. And having a secondary mandate for competitiveness gives us all a mechanism and a prism through which to hold the regulators, I think, a little bit more to account for some of the things that they do. I can't speak specifically about the copper situation, but ensuring that the regulators do wish to move forward, are staffed in order to process the necessary applications and are engaging with industry such that we can all educate each other on this dynamic and fast moving sector. These are some of the key things we need to ensure that we can move forward in a timely but prudent way. It's quite a challenge for the FCA, though, isn't it, to get their head around how they approach this sector? Because as FTX's collapse proves, there are clear consumer risks towards investing in these businesses and in crypto in general. But at the same time, the FCA does have the secondary objective to ensure that London is a competitive market. And they're looking at a sector that is quite flighty. These are firms that tend to be quite lean and they can establish themselves wherever. In that context, what tips would you have for the FCA looking to find that balance between all those factors? There are two things that I would say in response to that. The first is... It would be much easier for the FCA if there was a regulatory framework. And there is one forthcoming from from the Treasury. Certainly, we expect a consultation on that later this year or early in the new year. 
And with that regulatory framework in place, it will be much easier for them to manage the sector, whether that's the the licensing aspects of it or or whether that's the day-to-day supervision. Currently, they have their AML rules and using the AML rules works very well for AML, but using that as a mechanism to try and supervise more broadly a sector for which there aren't more bespoke rules is always going to be a, a little bit tricky. And so it would be easier, I think, and better for everybody involved if the FCA and the PRA, to the extent that this will relate to more systemic actors, are able to supervise and police and manage to a framework that is a bespoke framework for crypto asset service providers. So I think that'll be helpful. You also touched on the onshore versus offshore point, and I think it's a really good one. And it's one that is brought into sharp relief by the FTX collapse. What we need to make sure is that whatever regulatory regimes that do come forward or that are already contemplated and accelerated, that these regimes really must make incentives for people to actually be onshore and licensed and regulated. And they must therefore reward those firms that are compliant and decide to do that. If we see an imbalance where you can be an offshore actor and you can provide services very freely onshore, and you can do so without some of the frictions and without some of the checks and balances that you'd have onshore. Let's say you can provide more tokens or you can address a broader market or whatever it happens to be. That is always going to be very difficult for supervisors. And so we need incentives. We need the onshore regulatory environment to provide the commercial incentives necessary to ensure that firms are incentivized to be onshore. And that's a win-win for everybody because it means that the regulators will therefore be able to protect against consumer detriment much more effectively than if they're trying to police an offshore model. It is difficult to police offshore, particularly in a world in which we don't have global rules. So another big part of this is trying to land on from the G20 FSB and IOSCO down a set of basic global minimum, as it were, on crypto rules. And if that is the case, and if those are implemented harmoniously across all the big jurisdictions, then that should reduce the opportunity that is out there currently for firms to perhaps establish themselves in locations where there are either no rules or there is a lower level of supervision. And that arbitrage and that patchwork of different rules and different supervisory outcomes, I think, creates some of the complexity and challenges that we see today. You mentioned the need for commercial incentives for firms that choose to onshore. What do you have in mind there? So, for example, there are situations where if you're onshore, there is a very limited number of assets that you can make available on an exchange for investors. So in in some instances, in some parts of the world, that's very low single digits. But where you don't have that regulation in some of the offshore markets, you can make available hundreds of assets. And therefore, the commercial incentive to be onshore when you have a, a much narrower inventory of tokens that you can make available is less clear. And so I think we can address this, for example, by taking an approach not dissimilar to what the EU has done in NICO, which is very forward thinking, whereby you set out a robust regulatory process to supervise how exchanges do the due diligence to put assets on their platform. So rather than saying, here are the two assets or three assets that we think should be green listed and everybody can list and trade, you say, here are the rules around which we expect crypto asset service providers and exchanges to assess the the merits and suitability and the robustness and the safeness, et cetera, of the tokens. And if those processes are fit for purpose, then the tokens that pass those processes should therefore be able to be listed. And so through that self-certification mechanism, for want of a different description, effectively, you can then 
ensure that you've got a commercial incentive and a broader set of tokens that you can trade on onshore that is comparable with what you can do offshore. So it's trying to basically bridge the gap between what you can do and provide from offshore with what you can do and provide onshore to make everybody realize that the sustainable path forward is to be licensed and it's to be onshore and it's to lean into the regulation. The government has recently announced that it's scrapping a so-called intervention power, which is included in this package of reforms you've mentioned, the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which would have given the government the powers to effectively call in regulators if they felt that they were not able to meet their goals for financial services reforms in the UK. Do you have a view on the decision to scrap that intervention in light of the regulators' responsibilities for the crypto sector currently? The question I think in our mind is, you know, do we specifically need to have the call in power or are there other routes to achieve the same ends? We talked previously about the secondary mandate that will be given through the Financial Services Markets Bill to supervisors and regulators to have an eye and have regard to competitiveness. That's important. There is also another innovation that we've also seen come through post-Brexit that is less remarked upon, whereby the government is able to set out activity-specific regulatory principles. This is actually really important and people don't pay too much attention. What it effectively means is that if regulators are about to embark on a whole new set of important regulations for a particular sector, the government empowered to create a framework within which the regulators have to then set those rules. So we saw that quite powerfully occur in the way that the government set a framework around which the Bank of England should think about the implementation of the Basel III bank capital reforms, where the government effectively said, look, as you think about setting these rules, please be mindful of the need to protect financial stability, but also be mindful of the need to preserve the competitiveness of the UK and also have a regard to things like climate finance. Those two things allow the industry and other stakeholders to then assess whether what is being done and what is being said measures up and it provides a hook on which to base some form of challenge. I can see the merit in the calling power as a last resort option, but equally we can see how other mechanisms could potentially be used to generate a not a similar outcome. Okay. We're speaking amid predictions that a recent backlash against the Conservative Party's handling of the tough economic period that the UK is currently in will secure its main rival, the Labour Party, a win in the next general elections, which are currently scheduled for 2025. How would you summarise a possible Labour government's approach to crypto? And are there any aspects of that potential approach that you think they need to be clearer on? The Labour Party have, to my knowledge, not been too prescriptive with regards to their approach to digital assets and crypto. And certainly we're hopeful that crypto and digital assets can be a bipartisan topic. And certainly that's how we've thought about it in terms of our engagement with parliamentarians. We've done that across the political divide, either through the APPG on crypto or through events and other things we've held in parliament. So Labour probably are cleverly not saying too much about the detail of their policies at, at this stage. And certainly I think they haven't espoused a very detailed or prescriptive view on digital assets. And we hope that when they do, it will be one that will foster the innovation whilst, of course, protecting the consumer. To what extent are you ramping up engagement with the shadow government currently? So like all industry participants, we are trying to engage broadly. And as I said before, we are dealing with the APPG as well as the shadow chancellor's team, etc. So we are having those kind of conversations. I think it's important and we don't make any bets on election outcomes, but we do want to make sure that across the political divide that there is support for digital assets. So it is something that is on our minds. 
And you've mentioned, Mika, the EU's market in crypto assets rules a number of times, and those are obviously quite a bit further ahead than the UK's crypto regulation. You mentioned that you would like to see the UK adopt the good bits of Mika and not the less necessary parts of it. Could you summarise what you see as the good bits and what are the bits that you would like to see on the scrap pile? Yeah, certainly. So it's really impressive that the EU moved ahead so quickly. So now that Mika has been finally approved and will enter into force in mid-2024, the idea that you can open up a market of 400, 500 million users, you could effectively headquarter in one member state and have passporting across all 27. It's very exciting. So kudos to the EU for being an early mover and for bringing out a rule set that is overall decent. On the good side, the rules for crypto asset service providers the CASPs have come out in a good place. The approach to asset listing, whereby they put the onus on the exchange and they regulate them of approving assets rather than the supervisor themselves approving assets is a very good one. And by the way, that's not what we see in other jurisdictions necessarily around the world. The rules around risk and controls and governance came out in a sensible place. Where it is not so good, I'm not sure I'd go as far as saying throw it on the scrap pile, but where I think the rules are not so good probably relates to the treatment in Mika of stable coins. We're really excited about the potential of stable coins as a, a means of payment on the blockchain rail. But what the EU text does is it places a number of constraints on stable coins. There is a prohibition on providing interest on stable coins, and that probably relates to a concern about disintermediating bank deposits. We think that that concern is rather disproportionate if we look at the scale of bank deposits versus stable coins. And we do also think there's a case for healthy competition on bank deposits and rewarding or paying customers with interest when we are in a period of rising interest rates. There's also a cap on the use of non-EU stable coins in the Mika text. And we worry that that means that the use of US denominated stable coins or others is going to be difficult. And whilst we all want to see a strong euro stable coin, I think that would be a terrific development. I think actually you want to see competition, you want to see a portfolio of different stable coins. And right now, the, the biggest stable coins in the market are non-EU denominated. And so to ensure in the short term that we don't offshore the use of innovation in DeFi, et cetera, and, and some of the other areas where stable coins are being used, it is important to be able to use both euro denominated, but also US and other denominations in stable coins. So that's also important. And then I think the final thing on stable coins, which is a bit problematic, are the capital requirements, which are 2%, I think, rising to 3% on stable coins where they are systemic. And I'm not sure that I can tell you, Lucy, now what we think the precise number should be, but I think it is important to consider what the risks are and that we capitalize the risks of stable coin arrangements in a thoughtful way. And if you've got fiat-backed stablecoins that are backed one-to-one -one with cash or cash equivalents like you know, treasuries, for example, and you've got proper transparency and disclosure and segregation, et cetera, of the reserve, then the market risk is limited. The counterparty credit risk should be limited. It's really operational risk that you are having to capitalize. And so we feel like that number probably should be lower than the number in the text. And I guess the other corollary is to think about banks leverage ratios, which are 3% or a little bit higher for bigger banks. And that is the non-risk weighted capital requirement for banks. But banks, if you look at their balance sheet, they have a stack of assets, some of which are relatively risk-free, but others moving into the unsecured derivative end that certainly are risky. And we do know that bank regulation applies in some instances, particularly in the EU, a 0% risk weight to treasuries and those types of cash-like instruments. And so on that basis, if you're going to have same risk, same regulatory outcome, 
then I think you would look at the capital coins, stable coins, and you'd want to make sure that those were proportionate. So these are aspects of the MECA regulation on stable coins that we think over time may be reconsidered, particularly because we do want to see a thriving stable coin market in the EU and, and elsewhere, given the potential use cases and adoption of this technology as we scale it. Okay, that's really interesting. And lastly, and generally, what is an upcoming or current challenge in the crypto space that you believe not enough people are paying attention to? So post FTX, there have been some calls for an accelerated move to decentralized finance or DeFi. This is effectively where you're not transacting with a bank or an exchange, but effectively just peer to peer in terms of borrowing and lending, et cetera, or you're insuring basically via a smart contract. And so the code replaces the humans, as it were. We think DeFi is going to be a big part of the future here, but it does also present a very interesting challenge for regulators as they set about trying to consider when to start regulating and supervising DeFi and how. Normally, the approach is to regulate the intermediary. But if the purpose of DeFi is to remove the intermediary, then obviously there are questions about how effectively you do regulate and how you regulate and should you regulate. And there are beginning to be some quite thoughtful contributions on this. For example, the EU is thinking about embedded supervision. Others are thinking about how do you embed compliance with basic rules into the code itself. Potentially, there are groups that are provided incentives and bounties for spotting bugs in some of these protocols, etc. So this is an upcoming exciting area where we've got to, again, be really careful that we don't weigh in too heavy handedly with regulation too soon, too early and have a close conversation and dialogue between the industry and regulators as these things evolve because that's exciting. Related to that is the use of self-hosted wallets. This is a big challenge and topic, I think, for both the industry and regulators. Self-hosted wallets will be critical to Web3. We think they will be the browser, effectively, that people will use to navigate online to decentralized websites and applications. You can see a world in which your wallet has some central bank digital currency, it has a sterling stablecoin, maybe some US dollar stablecoins. It has tokens related to your contributions to certain websites, your decentralized IDs in there, your NFTs, all sorts of things. And that is your passport, ticket, browser, whatever you want to call it, to this new paradigm shift that we're going to see in the internet. But how do we think about those wallets in terms of how do they fit into financial services regulation? Do they fit into financial services regulation? There's a whole set of quite knotty issues associated with self-hosted wallets that we have to address. You can see that education of lawmakers and the relevant policymakers would be a crucial first step as they look to those two innovations. I can imagine that understanding of them would not be necessarily intuitive to a number of regulators or lawmakers. I think that's absolutely right. And a lot of the conversations I have with lawmakers focus on some of the risks. Either it's the climate change risk, which comes up a lot, or it's this AML, KYC, terrorist financing concern and risk, which was particularly pronounced after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But there's education to your point, Lucy, around what is the right perspective to bring to that topic and what is the relative importance or the relative size of the concern. And we believe, and you've seen this through chain analysis, elliptic and other private sector reports, that actually blockchain is probably being used for less than 1% of illicit finance. And that's something which has also been proven by the Global Financial Action Task Force. They've also said that there's nothing categorically more risky with a self-hosted wallet than a custodial wallet. So that's also really important. And because I think intuitively people think, oh, a non-hosted wallet, oh, that sounds risky and blockchain, isn't that used to launder money? And a lot of these things bubble up to the surface. But if you take the time 
to peel back the onion and to get underneath, you can actually come up with a very different perspective based on the facts, which allow us to then calibrate the regulatory response in a more proportionate way. So fully agree on a number of these issues, which tend to be political hot buttons. A lot of it sober objective analysis needs to be done to help ensure that we land in the right place. Well, you've covered a lot of ground during this conversation and you've listed a huge number of policies that lawmakers and regulators could consider as they look to get their heads around the crypto sector. So it'd be very interesting to see which of those are adopted. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time today. Great talking to you. Thank you, Lucy. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.